This is Remy Fortier, and this is Union City Advice Givers Podcast. Each week, you'll get an inside look into the lives and stories of Union City entrepreneurs, business owners, and thought leaders. It's our goal to give Union City the best advice from our community's brightest and most trusted minds. For more episodes, check us out on our archive at unioncityadvicegivers.com. And if you know someone who you think should be on the show, go to unioncitypodcastbooking.com. Welcome back, podcast listeners, to another episode of Union City Advice Givers. We took a little bit of a summer hiatus, and we are back with some wonderful interviews to keep you entertained and advised. But today is special, because today we have Union City's own Chief of Police, Chief Daryl McAllister. Daryl McAllister's career spans 35 years. He started working in the Hayward Police Department at the age of 18, And we are very lucky to have him here in Union City. I cannot think of a more accomplished or appropriate person to uh, command and lead our police department. Um, Daryl McAllister is extremely well qualified for this position. He served as a member of a faculty at University of Phoenix and Chapeau College teaching criminal justice. He sits on the board of directors for St. Rose Hospital Foundation. He is... Um, on the advisory board for the University of San Francisco's International Institute of Criminal Justice Leadership. He went to Quantico. He's He's been awarded Hayward's Police Officer of the Year Award in 2007. He also was selected by Southern Alameda County's NAACP for its prestigious Person of the Year Award for 2015. His manuscript, Law Enforcement Turns to Face Recognition Technology, was published in Information Today magazine. He authored Hayward PD's strategic plan in 2008 Beyond, which was officially adopted and published by the city of Hayward in December of 2008. I could go on and on about the qualifications of our chief of police, but what I want to share with you after meeting with him and sitting down to interview him is the warmth and the caring that I felt sitting across from Chief McAllister. This is a man who is a giver uh, and a leader and so committed to our community that we could not ask for a better chief of police. But beside all of that, what I didn't expect was that Chief McAllister is a master storyteller. And as you listen to my interview with him, notice how well he shares his stories. It's really a great interview, and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. In the interview, we mentioned some of the other interviews that we've had on the show, so be sure to go back and listen to City Manager Tony Acosta's interview just a few weeks before, and also the mayor of Union City, Mayor Carol Dutra-Vernacci, and finally, Police Sergeant Freddie Camacho, who is all mentioned in this interview. And uh, with no further ado, here is Chief Daryl McAllister. Chief of Police Daryl McAllister, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully. I've interviewed a lot of people, and a couple of the people that I've interviewed suggested that I interview you, and they tell me that you have some great stories to tell. But let's go back a little bit and tell me, I actually read on some news articles about you, about why you became involved in police work in the first place. Could you tell us that story? Yes. First of all, I'm humbled, and thank you for coming and doing this interview. I, you know, I, I didn't know that uh, I was being spoken of so uh, so uh, highly, so I appreciate the time, and and I'm always uh, happy to share um, really good stories about things going on in this in this world of policing and with with uh, what's going on in Union City. How did I get started? I've known ever since I was eight years old that I wanted to be a police officer, and it usually doesn't happen that early. I mean, kids run around, they play cops and robbers and all those kinds of things. But my seeding, if you will, came from a really brief but very positive interaction with a police officer a long time ago. I was eight years old. Uh, I was living in Hayward, right mm-hmm. next door to us. I was playing catch with a football with a, with a friend of mine, a buddy of mine, we were like age. We were in the middle of the street in front of uh, my house, just playing catch. And uh, we were just there, and then slowly around the corner behind me, about oh, 20, 30 yards behind me, very slowly around the corner, rounds this police car. And I looked back, I glanced back, and I saw and I saw it was a, uh, an African-American police officer, which you didn't see very much then. It was kind of a, a, an interesting sight. And um, he just came around the corner slowly, and then he pulled to the curb, and he was just kind of sitting there in this car. And we were still playing catch. 
as you can imagine how an eight-year-old kind of perceives things, my attention is starting to get divided. And you're still playing catch. I'm, it's amazing I didn't get hit, hit in the head with the ball. <laughs> but uh, the officer eventually, after, I don't know, a minute or so, um, motions us over. And I'm looking at my my buddy, and is, is he talking to us? And so we we, we uh, moseyed our way over to the car. And when you're eight years old and you're a little guy, everything looks bigger than it really is. This car looked like an aircraft carrier. Sure, like giant. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was my brain was overstimulated. I'd never been that close to a police officer before, and plus it was a, it was a black officer. And, and he just started talking. He was asked us our names. He told my names, and he says, uh, "You know, I've been sitting here." Uh, Watching you for a few uh, for for a minute or so, and um, watching how you're playing off of each other, how you're respecting each other, and just uh, there's so many things that you could be getting into negatively right now. I just wanted to call you over here and tell you I'm proud of you. And I remember my heart was just beating, and all the sensations of the heat coming out from under the car, and and you know my my brain being this overstimulated, but being this close. And he says. Uh, I'm so proud of you. He's still sitting in the car. And he reaches, he, he lifts up off the seat and reaches into his pocket and pulls out some change and puts it in our hands and says, I'm so proud of you. I want you to go over to the Palmasia snack bar, which is about a block away, and get what you want. And I remember skipping off going, whoa, that's <laughs> what I want to be. Yeah. And um, so that's when the seed was planted. Fast forward uh, about six years or so, I was a freshman in high school at Mount Eden High School in Hayward. Some friends and I were uh, kind of just gathered around and talking during a PE class one day, and we were all talking about what we wanted to do in life. And when it was my turn, I said I wanted to be a police officer. That was still uh, seated in my mind. And after going through all the disbelief, really, 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 um, I ended up following up by going to the career center and getting some information and I was ultimately directed to the uh, the Police Explorer program in Hayward, where I went. Uh, I was 14 years old. I ended up joining that program at the Hayward PD. And I just couldn't believe that a kid of my age could eventually be allowed to roam the halls of the police department. <laughs> you know, <unescorted. laughs> they trusted you. Yeah. And so one day, not too long after I got involved with the program, I'm walking down the hall and I'm walking past this room that has plate windows on it. And this room is where officers write their police reports at the end of the shift. I look in there and I see this older guy, black guy. And I just knew that that's that's him. You recognized him. That's that's so got How many him. years passed between that moment when I was like eight. six? I was 14 then. 14. So, it was six, so yeah, years. six years later. And so I worked up the courage and went into the room and introduced myself. I'm a little explorer. And he didn't remember. Well, but I told him <clears throat> what that minute or so, 90 seconds or so, meant to me. And that, that was the reason why I was there. And he was very, very touched by that. And and so that, that really kind of reinforced for me the power of, you know, kind of paying it forward. And I just want to kind of end this story a little bit. Why I, I'd gone through the Explorer program. I, I, I got older. I got hired at age 18. I went to the police academy at age 20. And when I came back... And I finished my training as a police officer many years later as as a 20-year-old. I was finally working my first couple of days on my own, and I pulled over this car. I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was pouring rain. I pulled over a teal-colored VW bug. I can remember (laughs) it. I can see it right now. And it was so pouring rain. I got up, and it was a stop sign violation. I got the, the driver's license information. I went back to the passenger side of my car, and the rain is just bouncing off my hat. I got my passenger window open to, to see, keep my ticket book dry. And so I'm trying to handle business. Now, out of the corner of my eye, I see this umbrella kind of in my periphery. And I look over, and this is a little boy walking under this umbrella in the pouring rain, African-American young man, probably seven or so years old. And as he's walking by on the sidewalk, I see that he's looking at me. And he's looking at my car, and he's looking at me, and he's walking slower, taking slower steps. And I get this incredible deja vu, so much so that I, I said, these people can wait. I put my inform- the ticket book down in the car, and I turned, and I said, hi. And as soon as I acknowledged him, his eyes just lit up. And I asked him his name, he told me his name, and I 
I said, what are you doing out here in this pouring rain? And he says, I'm going down to the market to get my mom and me a soda. I said, you came out here in this pouring rain Alone. to run an errand like that? Guess what I told him? I'm so proud. I said, I'm proud of you. And I reached in my pocket and I pulled out some change and I put it in his hand and said, get some chips too. And he skipped off going, whoa! That's what it's been about for 36 years for me. And that's how I got started. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah, it's a goosebumps Mm -hmm. moment for you, huh? Yes. So um, tell me a little bit about growing up in Hayward outside of the police. What did you enjoy doing? What was your childhood like? Well, I'm uh, the youngest of eight kids. So I've got six sisters and a brother. So I had to go through all the travails of being the youngest, you know, be always being left at home by everybody. No, nobody wanted me to come with them. You know, that kind of stuff that all your older siblings always do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you you know, you're always the one that gets the blame for everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I grew up in a very uh, tight-knit family. Uh, my, my, my dad was first career military, and then he was, uh, he had a... Uh, 20 plus year career at BART before it ever even opened up to the public. He started there. And my mom was in education. She's an early childhood uh, teacher. So we had, you know, life in our home growing up was very family oriented, large family oriented. We had a pretty much complete family unit. And so I was able to learn a lot, not only from the guidance of our parents, but from my older siblings as well. And that translated a lot into, you know, what I would like to think of as the the character that that kind of evolved into who I am today. Values. Yes. And are, you, are your family all still close? There? Yes, my parents both uh, died relatively young. My mom was only 53 and my dad was 64. But um, all of my siblings are still, uh, everybody's still alive and and. We still all talk and we still get together and so forth. I'm sure you have a lot of cousins, nieces, nephews. I do. I do. A whole whole pack. (laughs) I do. (laughs) So we kind of talked about what led you to becoming a police officer. Tell me a little bit about your time with Hayward and what what do you see as the differences between Hayward and Union City? Hayward, uh, that's obviously where I cut my teeth in this in this uh, this line of work, uh, a vibrant city, a diverse city, an active city, and it's also the city in which I grew up. So I have a lot of ties there. And truth be told, I you know from a career standpoint, I never really imagined that I would even go anywhere else. And we'll save that story for for, for when we get to that point. My career there was uh, it was very very uh, fulfilling. There were a lot of high highs, there were a lot of low lows, and everything in between that you could imagine with a long policing career. Um, I have seen the best of the best in people. I have seen the worst of the worst in people, and everything in between. I would equate, you know, a long career like this as kind of having probably one of the best front row seats to life. Hmm. You see everything you it's smack dab in the front row yeah. no filter no filter and you know where where you hear every sound you see every every detail you um it's it's a a very fulfilling sometimes enduring mm-hmm. experience uh coming up in in this field but uh i would never ever ever um discount the value of having um, experienced it. What would you say has been your biggest challenge? I would say, you know, just globally, I, you know, kind of from a more global perspective, uh, is the challenges we face right now uh, in this country with uh, the relationships between law enforcement and the and the communities they serve. That is a monumental challenge. Now, keep in mind, over the past thirty six years that I have been doing this in one shape or, or another, there have been some challenges. I have uh, been in some very precarious situations. I, ha- I have been forced to take a life before and, and have to endure all of the, the physiological and emotional 
um, travails of, of, of that. I have uh, seen just incredible grief. I People have died in my arms. And so I've seen and been involved with very challenging situations, many of which are you know, incident-driven or, or, or uh, tied to a particular point in time. What I speak of, though, now, in terms of the, the, the challenge now, is it's a much more global, troubling issue. It's, it's a, um, when you talk about just kind of a general relationship, a societal relationship and a societal view of our value or lack thereof in the eyes of the people who look to us for uh, for protection and guidance, that is a monumental challenge. And that's kind of where, on one hand, uh, as I am kind of in the the twilight or toward the end of my professional career, uh, my professional law enforcement career, it's, it's kind of sad to see that it's gotten to this point. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's very inspiring to know what kind of opportunities... Sure. And, uh, you know, in a way, don't you think it's a little bit a sign of progress that people are speaking of what's wrong instead of just accepting? Like, you know, it seems like things are so much worse, but really hasn't it always been bad? And now people are vocalizing. Well, uh, part of that is is true in my eyes. I don't know that it's always been bad, first of all. Okay. Um, I think it's really, really good that that. People are challenging the norm and that um, it's raising questions for us in this line of work to look at the veracity of what we do and, and to, to, to find more concrete ways to establish trust and so forth. There's also kind of the notion that the narrative that we hear, the narrative that we we um, every time we turn on the news and so forth, it's it's get causing a, a level of fear that's not necessarily perfectly aligned with what is actually really going on. Because it's sensationalized. Yes, and so I don't at all begrudge the 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 idea that a lot of the things that we are most concerned about are happening. Hmm. They're just not happening to the degree that most people think. Right, and then, and it's not. It's not as if law enforcement in this country has suddenly come off the rails and um, is, you know, this uh, sort of um, uh, profession gone rogue. Law enforcement in this country has had a very checkered past to begin with. I mean, take it back to eras and especially the civil rights era and, and eras prior to, you know, the 60s. But there's a tremendous amount of just outstanding police work occurring in this country that we don't hear about. Absolutely. I agree with that. You know, I came from Berkeley, Oakland area. That's where I grew Mm -hmm. up. And so I have called the police and had them not come Mm -hmm. in East Oakland. I used to live off of seminary. And I remember when I first moved to Union City, we heard some guy, you know, mentally ill probably, in the street yelling, and Mike goes, call police. I called them. They were there in four minutes. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, what a blessing to live in a community where I can feel that safe. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that alone is, you know, you, like you said, there's a lot of good incidents that happen out there mm-hmm. that, that people don't sensationalize the same way they do the bad. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be nice to catch a few of those videos on a cell phone and have them go viral. Right. You know, I saw the YouTube video that uh, you guys have put together, and there was one that was all the good policing put together into a montage. I thought mm-hmm. that was really, really cool. Absolutely. If you could go back in time to the start of your career, what advice would you give your younger self? Oftentimes, people, um, especially people who don't enjoy what they do, or they feel like they've missed something, or feel like uh, they took the wrong path, that question is a really, really easy question for, for, for them to answer. Because if, if I could do it all over again, man, I would do this, this, this. I could tell you this right now. If somebody came along and pushed my rewind button and took me back to the beginning of the tape with all the good and the bad and the, the serious and the, the um, <clears throat> during, things I had to endure along the way, I'm telling you right now, I would push play again. You wouldn't change it. I would push play again. 
This has been an incredible ride. And the I know, I know in my heart that there are people whose lives have been able to contribute to saving. And I'm not just talking about physical physically saving lives. I'm talking about you never know when there's something that you say or something that you do or a gesture that you make that make makes the difference for someone. All the difference. All the difference in the world. And I know that I, I know that they exist because I've seen it. Uh, people have, over the course of these 36 years, taken the time to come back out of whatever abyss they were where they were uh, wallowing in to say, "You really made a difference for me." I always ask everybody to tell me a story and to mm-hmm. share a time where they know that they really made a difference. Can you t- share one of those stories with us? Oh my gosh, there's so many. If um, you can pick one. <laughs> I would say, um, aside from what I just uh, told you about a little bit ago with uh, the young boy uh, when I had just gotten uh, off of my training and on my own in the rain, I can remember one day I was driving, it was a, it was a weekend morning, there was hardly any traffic out, and I'm driving down uh, a street in Hayward like a three, four lane street in Hayward. It's a pretty big street. And as I'm driving down, I see this young boy. He's standing right there in the center of the street, right on the double yellow line. And he's crying. Just standing there, right in the middle of the street. So you weren't on a call. You no, just I was just saw him. I was just a little kid uh, just standing there, just crying. And so I, I'm, I'm in the first lane right there. I just stopped my car right there. I said, what's the matter? He's probably about... Uh, Probably about uh, 10 years old, maybe, 9, 10 years old. And he, he points way up the street, further up the street. He says, uh, that girl, she just took my puppy. And I look and I see this girl way further up on the sidewalk. And I says, okay. I said, come on, come around again. I said, I said, get in. So he gets in my car and I drive up to where she is. And then, sure enough, there's a girl walking uh, on the street with a puppy. And I so I get out and I, she's probably, you know, 13 years old and so I, I I ask her what's going on and she ultimately says well that boy he had my puppy that got stolen two or three days ago and I saw him he's got my puppy so I took it back I said really so I asked the boy where did you get this and he says well just a couple of days ago I was down at the market and there was a guy out in front and he said that he would sell me this dog and so I went home broke open my piggy bank oh gosh didn't tell my mom and I went back, and he was still there, and I bought the dog. And he brought the puppy home, and he had the puppy for one day when the girl who really owned the puppy sees it, sees it and takes it back. This boy was crushed. I took him home to his mom. Uh, he was really crushed, and it just sat on my heart. So throughout that whole day, I went around to all the other police officers who were working that day, I called the animal services to see if they had any any young puppies in there. Ultimately, I was able to put together getting him another puppy by the end of the day. Wow. And I took up a collection and went to Toys R Us right there on, on Esperian, and we bought this boy a brand new bike. Oh, wow. Wow. And he had no idea. So by the end of the day, I was able to go back to his home and pick him up, and he, had, he didn't know anything what we were doing. And I took him. We had all the arrangements made. I took him. And uh, his brand new puppy came up and kissed him on the face, licked him on the face, and he started crying. He just couldn't believe it. He was just, oh, it's just, it was just so fulfilling. And I remember he was so overwhelmed by this puppy, and then he thought that was it. And we went back out. I put him in my car. I said, we have one more stop to make. And I drove to uh, to Toys R Us. The manager and all the employees were standing out in front. Oh wow! And we pulled up, and he didn't know what we were doing. And he got out, and they had a bike with a big bow on it. And he, I said, that's yours. Go ahead. And he didn't know what to do. And he ran up and he got on the bike. He started riding the parking lot. <laughs> He's screaming. screaming. <laughs> Those are the moments that um, make a difference. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen when he gets older. But those are the moments that make but a difference. But you know that you've 
put something in his heart, he'll never forget. So if he has a bad experience with a cop later down the road, mm-hmm. you can't take that away from Absolutely. him. He always has that memory. He always knows that they're, they're the good ones out there, too. What a great story. <laughs> so, it's okay, you want a tissue? Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I need a tissue. Yeah, you I'll get you, I'll get you. <laughs> <laughs> you <totally got> me. <laughs> Usually my guests tear up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So, so the the next question that I ask, I always say, you know, is there another great story that you want to share? And sometimes that sticks people, and they don't have another one because they only prepared one. So if you don't have another one, that's okay. It's fine. I got tons of them. <laughs> you got another one. Um, how about <laughs> since during the time you come to Union City? What's a good story? A lesson you learned? Something that uh, you want to share with our listeners about your time here in Union City? Well, um, there's so many, but one that comes to mind is how hungry this community is to network with each other and uh, to, to feel a sense of community and a sense of belonging. That's how I met uh, Daryl Blackburn, for example, our, our uh, one of our chiropractors in town who I believe has been on this podcast. Yes, he has. You know, that came through a just kind of happenstance where we were doing a Coffee with Cops event where there's really no agenda associated with those. We just go, we arrange, and we just meet, and we just chat with the community. And, that, I, and to be able to make a connection like that just with somebody who happened to be there who was attracted to the idea of being able to talk with the cops yeah. over something that wasn't a problem, and established new, forge new relationships it end, ends up where um, he and I have turned into a mentee mentor friendship that uh, we both just absolutely cherish and it's it's things like that it's stories like that it's it's um, being able to kind of make the headway that we've been able to make here in Union City with with creating a really robust genuine, trust-based relationship with so many people here that um, makes a difference in so many people. It makes a difference with us. It does. And it also makes a difference with our contribution to trying to change this narrative. Daryl was on the show, Dr. Blackburn, Mm -hmm. and I did ask him, uh, because I knew you were friends, Mm -hmm. if there was anything I should ask you about. So one thing he mentioned was your love of cooking. <laughs> yeah, he mentioned an infamous baked quail. Yeah, she made. And uh, so, tell me a little bit. How did you get into cooking? Cooking um, for me, and by no stretch of the imagination, am I am I some kind of a cooking czar or anything like that? I just enjoy the whole idea of kind of being in free form, letting go, being in the kitchen. You know, having some music on, just sometimes experimenting, and it's it's. It's just a relaxing kind of getaway. Um, it's it's a um, it's 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 a relaxing uh, opportunity for me. In fact, <laughs> my wife makes a joke of it. She says, oh, "Are you ready to relax tonight?" <laughs> <laughs> That's the signal. That's the signal. Why don't you go in the kitchen and relax? Yeah, my my system is I just go to Costco and buy meat. Yeah, just, oh, look what I, I picked up a tri tip, honey. <laughs> and I, I just, I just, I, I love the idea of um, just doing that. It's cooking is is it's so pleasure driven. It's so, um, especially when you're when you're experimenting. It's so, um, it's fun. It is. I enjoy cooking. As yeah. Well. So, would you say has been your greatest mentor? Um, you mentioned being a mentor yourself. Yes. So you know, my greatest mentor. Uh, he is still alive. He's in his seventies. But he is also a former police officer uh, at Hayward, and I mentioned the officer in, my, in the earlier story that that I saw when I was eight. Mm-hmm. This is a different African American officer at Hayward, and when I was at high school age, and I was an ex- police explorer, this officer kind of took me under his wing. The first officer I was talking about, he ultimately retired not too long after I got there okay. as a as a kid. But this other officer took me under his wing. His name is Frank Bowman, and um, he just he just mentored me. He would sometimes he would pick me up from school 
in the middle of the day, go in the office and tell him that he needed to talk to me. You know, he needed to talk to a witness and something. They pull me out of class and I'd go right along with him. You know, statute of limitations is out on that. Right, right. <laughs> but I'd go right along with him. He turned out to be my mentor in life. And I used to go right along with him as a kid. He, he'd see me walk into school some days and he'd say, get in, I'll give you a ride to school. Well, later on, when I became a police officer and came out of the academy... He was my primary training officer. Wow. And now I'm in a situation where I'm driving and he's riding in the police car. And he was just a great mentor. And then later on, when I, you know, years later, when I promoted into, you know, the first level leadership, first line of supervision, I was a sergeant. He was on my team. I was his supervisor. Oh, how funny. And then later on after that, when I got into management as a lieutenant. Mm-hmm. He had just retired when I got promoted to lieutenant, and he came to the um, to the promotional ceremony, and he didn't know I was going to do this, but I dedicated my promotion to him, and he oh. cried. Oh. All these years later, four years ago now, when I uh, came to Union City from Hayward, and I got introduced at the city council meeting, who's sitting in the audience? He came. Frank Bowman. How special. And we still talk all the time. That's awesome. No wonder you're such a good mentor, huh? Learn from the best. Yeah. The other thing Daryl said was that you have a great story about your father. You want to share that? Um, my dad, um, I'm, I'm very, I feel very honored and proud uh, to be my dad's son. My dad uh, is part of United States Navy history. Um, he, um, he, um, his dream. Uh, as a young man, when he first got into the Navy at age 17, was he wanted to be a submariner. He wanted to be on submarines. And, and uh, it was a very different era back then. It was a very different time. It wasn't too long after um, the President Truman ordered the desegregation of the military that uh, he found himself uh, studying and becoming a nuclear electrician. Wow. Which was really unheard of in a lot of ways for a black man back then in the in the armed services but he did and around that same era in the 50s um submarines back then were powered by diesel fuel and uh which limited their distance that they could travel before needing to refuel okay um and so america was trying to get it was an arms race and all that, and they were trying to be the first to, to come up with an alternative. So the first nuclear power submarine this world has ever seen came out of the United States Navy, USS Nautilus. And when that submarine was commissioned, it was like a major advancement in world submarine technology. And my dad set his sights of being on that submarine. And... Um, he ultimately got onto that sub on the crew as what was then referred to as a thinking Negro. <laughs> Seriously. Most, uh, if you were a black man in the military, especially on a submarine, generally you were a cook. Right. So they referred to him as a thinking Negro. But there's a very, very famous voyage, you can Google it, uh, that the USS... Nautilus went on. It was, it was the equivalent then of what it was like later on going to the moon. Okay. Where this submarine embarked on a somewhat perilous journey. They were going to test the might of this nuclear power and they were going to navigate under the North Pole and pop out of the other side of the world. Oh, wow. Being able to go that distance without having to refuel because you're a nuclear power. Nobody had ever done that before. And so the world was kind of watching then. Well, right. I mean, the first Because if time. something goes wrong, they're under the ice, they're, they're, they're going to perish. There's no way to go rescue them. There's no way to get to them and so forth. So they, the submarine went on this voyage, very famous voyage. And when they got to the latitude, longitude of the North Pole, you can read about this online, they torpedoed through the ice in order to surface to mark American history. Wow. And my dad was one of two black men on that submarine. 
Amazing. I have a picture hanging in my office that I look over at just about every day, especially when I'm facing some kind of adversity. And the picture is uh, my dad and the other African American on that famous voyage. After the crew got out and they're taking all their momentous photos and all that, they finally convinced someone to take a picture of the two of them. And the cook had gotten some... So the other other one was a cook. Yeah. The cook had gotten some empty mayonnaise jars from the galley. Mm -hmm. And the two of them made a symbolic North Pole using electrical tape around the stack of mayonnaise jars. And so they stood out there on the ice. You can see the submarine in the background. And took a photo of that historic moment. Wow. That photo hangs on my wall. If you let me, office. I'll take a picture of it and I'll, I'll post it for everyone listening so they can see. Okay. You know, my dad was a, a, a very, very prominent figure in our family. I mentioned I have a big family. and There's a lot of his values and a lot of his uh, ways that, that I have kind of adopted in terms of how to deal with adversity, how to espouse character. You know, the stick to itness, you know, the just the important things about life and about people. I, I espouse those things in, in what I do. Um, after he uh, retired uh, from the military after 22 years, because of his experience as a nuclear electrician, he first got hired by GE, and then ultimately there was this, this system that was being built in the Bay Area. For uh, rapid transit, it's called. They were going to call it BART, and he got hired by BART before BART was completed. Wow! To help them um, with, so he was an engineer at BART, um, and that's where he spent the next part of his life until he finally died. That's what brought your whole family to Hayward. Was working on BART. Um, my family came to Hayward in 1968. Um, my dad bought our house from with a GI bill, and uh, he was uh, he when he retired from the, the Navy, um, he retired out of uh, Treasure Island, and uh, so we were local here anyway. Okay. When he, when that happened, so that's why I was able to go to elementary, middle, and high school without Hayward, moving around like Hayward, yep. all the Navy families do, mm-hmm. right? So. What achievement, you know, I could list them and I probably will when I introduce you, but mm-hmm. what achievement are you the most proud of? My family. My uh, my kids, I have three kids. Uh, they are now 26, 21, and 17. I'm proud of them. Um, my youngest is still in high school. Um, my oldest is all done and she's working for Amazon. And my middle one, who is just starting her senior year at college, uh, at Howard University in Washington D.C., I'm very proud of them. I, they are they're an accomplishment. They are a tremendous accomplishment professionally. Um, I'm proud of the fact that I've gone through this career with all the danger and all the peril. I've been able to to successfully make it through longevity and 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 maximize my ability. To make an impact without having it being cut short for any reason. Proud of that. Yeah. I mean, when I think about police, one of the things that always struck me is I always imagine if my husband was a police officer, you know, the fear and Mm -hmm. how to live through that. It would be such a huge challenge. And he Mm -hmm. talks about a lot of his friends became police. You know, Mm -hmm. we have friends who are officers. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I just don't know how I would do Mm -hmm. that, be able to do that every Mm -hmm. night. You know, just worrying. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of Mm -hmm. courage. And then I guess one, one last part of that, and, and this is more recently, but I'm, I'm really proud of this organization. Uh, when I came here, you know, it's, it's, it's always difficult when you have somebody who comes to take the helm from the outside. You don't know what you're getting. You don't know what they're about. You don't know what their values are. You don't know how they're going to lead. You don't know if you're going to be led into something uncomfortable or not. I'm proud of this organization, the way it has responded, not only to what I've asked for and what I have implemented as as its chief, but I'm proud of this organization because the men and women who work here 
boy, do they care. They really do. And I, I see evidence of it all the time. I see how much they invest in helping to change this troubling narrative that we have. Right. The conversation. I'm proud of them. Good. And, you know, I mean, that, that brings us to everything that Tony shared, Tony, the city manager, Tony mm-hmm. Acosta, in his interview. For those of you who haven't heard it, if it's episode 16, and about 35 minutes in, he talks about you coming to the police department. Mm-hmm. And he really talks about that you can create procedure and you can design a program and you can say this is our protocol for how we're going to communicate with our community but it's not just you set it all up and then it's good you know Mm -hmm. it's an ongoing thing to change that narrative like you talked about too um and that's where he feels you've had such great success so yeah success is really defined by you know the quality of the people you know with whom you surround yourself and there is no lack of quality here. Um, the leadership here is stellar. Um, the The people who we employ here are stellar. We have high standards here. We have created an environment in this organization where we're not afraid to step into the uncharted waters. We're not reluctant to do what we haven't done before. And we have this high degree of confidence that no matter what we encounter, we're going to be able to be successful with it, with it. And I attribute a lot of that to just the quality of people that that we have around. It's not, you know, I, the, the success of this organization is not just me. You know, my role is to set the vision and to, to, to communicate the mission of this organization, but it's up to everybody in this organization to tap into what we value as an organization and then to do the the work that speaks to those values. That's what the Union City Police Department does so, so well. Is there anything that you do day-to-day that you feel like contributes to your success and happiness, like a habit, a good habit? My executive assistant, Cassie, she calls me a social butterfly. That's what that's that's one of her many nicknames that she has for me. I won't tell you all the others. <laughs> but she, <laughs> I'll go ask her. <laughs> but she, but she has. She calls me social butterfly. She says things like, "Man, by the time you hit the parking lot and you park, uh, when you arrive to work, the time it takes for you to get from the parking lot to your office is sometimes." Well over an hour. So she has to schedule that. Now. No, she's doing your schedule. She knows it's going to take you a little longer. I'm one of those those people. I like it. It's not an exercise for me. I like to engage. And I can't just walk down the hall and walk past a bunch of people just to try to get to my office so I can go and be in a cocoon. I want to know what's up. I want to know how you're doing. I want to know what's going on with your kid. I want to know what happened since the last time we talked. I want to share a recipe with you. I, you know, yeah. and and you know, I have to kind of temper that because sometimes my schedule gets crazy and it looks like a checkerboard. Yeah, sometimes she has to get me. <laughs> but um, those are the things that that I do every day. You'll hear sometimes people in the organization. We'll talk about how, you know, Chief is kind of engaging. Well, it really is. I think, uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, the 50th anniversary video. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Sergeant Camacho makes that comment in that video where he says, you know, he's pretty engaging. <laughs> <laughs> so is he. Yeah. <laughs> so, takes yeah. one to know one, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and, I mean, what's the result of that is relationships. And mm-hmm. relationships is what creates uh, the culture that you want in any organization. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can connect with someone and I think um, care about what they're saying. Like mm-hmm. you said, you want to hear. Yeah. You have to care about what that other person is saying. That's what real communication is. It's an important word, care. And when you can value, value your environment around you, you value the people around you, your actions will really define whether or not that value is real. Right. And, and when people feel it's real, then they want to reciprocate that. Yes. Yes, they do. Is there any particular book, quote, or resource that has guided you that you want to share with the listeners? 
I have two quotes that I've used a lot in a lot of different forms. I, you know, one of the things that we didn't talk about is I teach too. You know, um, I for the last several years I've been teaching for the University of Phoenix, and I also teach at Chabot. And on every syllabus, every syllabi that I put together, I always put um, an Abe Lincoln quote. But it also applies to kind of how I um, deal with everything here today. And and it's it, it goes like this. It's not the years in your life that count. It's the life in your years. I live that. I try to treasure and value the moments. I've been through, as I mentioned before, some of the most heinous things that most people would never see in their lifetime or have to deal with. And I've seen the greatest in people. When you could take the time to value the life in your years, then when you get older or old like me, um, you don't feel that way. You don't feel like you've got, like your odometer has turned over on your body. So that's one. I, I That quote resonates with me. And then another quote that, that has always resonated with me, and, and, and uh, in fact, we have trading cards. I was going to... We have we a lot of our officers in the police department have trading cards like baseball cards and right. kids collect them try to collect as many as they can and all of our various officers trading cards they all have a saying on the back. Mine includes the other quote, quote that uh, I really really like and it's by uh, Kobe Yamada and it's basically saying, "Follow your dreams, they know the way." Because that's what I did. Follow your dreams. They know the way. It's a good quote. Mm-hmm. It's good advice, too. Yeah. What I've found interviewing all the various uh, leaders and people mm-hmm. who know it in the community is that they never stop at just one thing. You mentioned teaching. You know, It's always like there's another challenge, and it keeps, I think you talk about age, it keeps us young, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just no limit to what you can do if you want it. Absolutely. Grab it. You know, and just go for it. Mm-hmm. What made you get into teaching? When you feel like you have nuggets of information and you don't maximize them, share them for the benefit of other people who maybe haven't encountered them, but maybe will. You know, you, you, you at least I, uh, kind of revel in the idea of being able to do that, to share them. And there's no better way to share really good nuggets of information than in a classroom where people have volunteered to be, they paid to be, to absorb all those nuggets. I enjoy the classroom environment. I enjoy sharing information and uh, nuggets. And then I also am a strong believer in the value of education. I'm back in school right now. What are you in school for? I just started a doctor a, do, a doctoral program. I'm, wow. I'm I started uh, I'm I'm going going to earn my uh, doctorate in educational leadership. <clears throat> and there's a method to that. There's a, a reason for that. What's the reason? Um, after I retire from being a chief. I feel like I've still got something in the tank for that information sharing. So I want to be able to use that uh, that doctor, that education, to be able to go around the country and help law enforcement organizations that are struggling in one way or area or another. Maybe it's in in professional development or employee development or strategic planning or police community relationship building. And weren't you invited to the White House under one of those achievements? Last year, um, I actually thought my staff was playing a joke on me. Did you really? I really did. I came into work one day and I opened up my email and I just opened up this email and it's got a picture of the White House on it and you are cordially invited to participate in um, a debriefing on the first year implementation of the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, which is, just real briefly, after Ferguson in 2014, November 14, uh, the President reached out to 
then chief of Philadelphia, Charles Ramsey. And he said, uh, Chief Ramsey, I'd, I'd really like for you um, to chair a task force. And I want this task force to be represented by all sorts of disciplines and minds. I want there to be, of course, law enforcement, but I want there to be um, mental health representatives. I want there to be civil rights advocates on there. I want there to be you know, health uh, representatives. On. I want this to be a very uh, diverse group of people, group of minds. And I want this task force to come together and come up with some guidelines, not, not a law, not a new law, but just some guidelines that law enforcement in this country can follow voluntarily to help bridge the gap between the law enforcement agencies and the communities they serve. Are you willing to do this? And Chief Ramsey agreed, and they got to it. They put it together. They put it together, this task force, and they got started in January of 15. And they worked on it for several months. They did listening sessions around the country and so on. And all these diverse minds from all these different backgrounds, they actually came to, into a consensus. Wow, that's difficult. And they they produced the final report on the president's task force on 21st century policing. Anybody can Google that. Okay. And you'll see this very comprehensive task force report that's broken up into six categories of recommendations. Well, that was issued in May of 15. So kind of fast forwarding to last year, around May, or yeah, about May or so is when I got that email, to come partake in a, com- a conversation about the first year's implementation of that recommendation report. And so I thought my staff was just playing a joke on me. Like, who's going to invite me to White House, right? <laughs> so I went down the hall. What are you guys doing? Blah, blah, blah. They didn't know what I was talking about. I said, yeah, right. It ends up being real. <laughs> and it said, you know, do not forward this. It's not an open invitation, blah, blah, blah. Don't make plans until you hear from us. Ultimately, I was able to go. I was among uh, about 100 chiefs in the room. From all uh, over the country. From all over the country. Different at the sides, White House. At the White House. Wow. Uh, we had a tour first, and then we were there all day long. And um, the, the program was being run by the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and uh, Valerie Jarrett, the president's then um, senior, senior advisor, kind of opened it up. And so we, we had all kinds of great dialogue, uh, uh, information sharing, idea sharing. We had some training. It was really, really good. It was just a great experience. It was a very, and I, I wasn't going for me. I was going for for this community and for this agency. And that's what I was representing there. Late in the afternoon, because um, we were taking breaks every so often, and you'd, go, you'd be able to go out in the restrooms there and all so forth. And the, at one point, we broke and nobody could leave the room. They had locked the doors for some reason. So we're all kind of milling around, and I see out of the corner of my eye, I see this, this guy pop out from behind the curtain because it was like a small room, like kind of like a the council chambers. Okay. There was a stage up in the middle, and, and it only seated like 100 people or so in there. And I see this guy pop out from behind the curtain, and he puts this, the the uh, presidential seal on the lectern, and he slips back behind the curtain. I go, he just came out and put the seal on the lectern. Sure enough, here comes President Obama. You had no idea. We None of us knew. Wow. And he came out, and he talked to us for about 20 minutes or so, and, and then he came down off of the... The little stage there, and he just came and shook everyone's hand and and talked to us for a little bit. It was a it was a pretty good experience being there in that environment. And he, he I talked about you know being from Union City and uh, representing this community, and and uh, you know he 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 said just keep doing what you're doing. So it was a pretty good experience. And so you have. And so we have. I had one other question about you know, all the various achievements that you have here. Is it common for an officer to go to Quantico and attend the FBI National Academy? The FBI National Academy is for, it's designed specifically for law enforcement leaders. So you have to be in, like, management level and, and above. And it's and it's academy designed specifically for them. And there's about 250 people in a class from all over the world, mostly the United States, and it goes about three months long, and you're there at 
at the FBI facility in Quantico. So I, I did that in 2010. Great experience, great networking experience, great opportunity to meet people uh, in this profession from all over and share ideas and commiserate and so forth. And you ended up with lifelong friends and lifelong contacts. And so, yeah, it's, it was it was pretty good. It's pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody can say that about either of those mm-hmm. achievements. If you could give some advice to someone just getting started in law enforcement, what nuggets would you share with them? What advice would you give? Well, uh, I think the first thing coming out of the gate, it goes back to my quote, follow your dreams. They know the way. Be true to yourself. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. Um, know that this is a honorable role in society that requires dedication and humility have life balance because if you don't have life balance the things that you're going to see the things that you're going to have to deal with are not typical for any human being to see or to deal with especially for long periods of time that's why the shelf life for law enforcement is so short so I would say those things and, and understand that although you, the, the aspiring law enforcement professional, may have to deal 10 times a day or 100 times a week or 1,000 times a year with a particular circumstance, always remember that that circumstance, the people who are involved, it may be their first time and their only time. And so the lens that you're looking through is different than the ones that they're looking through. And so understand that. Understand that the victim or the person who's involved who's been affected, they don't, it doesn't resonate that this is the 10th one you've been to today. Remember that. Hmm. And interact with them accordingly with that level of appreciation. And uh, you've put up with a lot of my questions today, and I really appreciate it. So this is your chance right now. What is something that you are fired up for? What do you want to share with our listeners? What do you want them to know that's going on here, the police department? Um, I'm really fired up that we are really um, becoming a model organization for what needs to be done in today's climate. We're really doing a lot of the right things here. Um, We are making incredible headway here in Union City. It doesn't mean that Union City was a bad police department because it wasn't. This department has been outstanding for a long, long time. But when you consider the environment that we're in right now, some of the things that we are doing are really modeling what should be done, in my view, around this country. And so I'm excited about that. One thing I did mention that uh, kind of a, this is a sneak preview or a sneak peek, but um, about two months ago, I received another kind of a surprise call. There's an organization called the International Association of Chiefs of Police. There are like 17,000 police chiefs from around the world. It's like in 130 countries wow. in here. And it's a very, very big organization. And it's a trend-setting organization. I belong to it. I got this call from a production company in England that is the primary production company for the International Association for Chiefs of Police. They do all of their their production work. <clears throat> the Union City Police Department, right here in Union City, California, has been selected to be highlighted as uh, an elite agency for some of these things that we're talking about right now. So they're going to be putting together a video of this. They're going to showcase this this organization over the next uh, couple of months, and it'll be debuted in October. That's pretty exciting. Huh? Yes, it yeah, is. The Brits are coming. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it is. So we've been, uh, I, I talked to the to the, <clears throat> the program director in, in London, and they ended up uh, getting a, um, 
a producer assigned out of Washington D.C. and they're coordinating everything right now. It's just it's just pretty cool. So when when that comes in October, will the, everybody be able to see it? Is that yeah, it'll be it'll get debuted first at the uh, the National Conference of IACP, the organization I just mentioned. But uh, after that, you know, we will own the video as well, and and uh, it'll be it'll be short, like a like a most videos are mini documentary but uh it's going to be pretty cool that is exciting really exciting Mm -hmm. how cool to be recognized like that i mean i i looked through some of the campaign components that you guys have here and i know why you're getting this recognition you know it's very clear Mm -hmm. all the things that you're doing some of my favorites i mean you mentioned um coffee with cops Mm -hmm. and um but you know i really love the catch you doing right Campaign, yes. So, have you guys had some fun with that? We've had a lot of. What's fun something with that? you've caught? Some <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, people, everything from people walking the dogs with a leash, uh, up to people helping others with jumper cables, uh, people stepping forward and and speaking up as a witness in, in situations, just people just being kind to one another. When our officers, you know, uh, this campaign goes, it kind of goes in cycles because we have to kind of solicit merchants for whatever kind of promotional items that they may have freebies whatever mm-hmm. um we gather all that stuff and then when we accumulate it we then arm our officers with all of that and then they when they it. see these great deeds going on then the officer lets hey i just want to let you know you just got caught doing right uh, and they issue a caught you doing right certificate and attached to the certificate is whatever the freebie swag is. We've yeah, swag. When I was at, uh, what was it? You had all kinds of stuff out at um, uh, my friend and former show guest Gilbert Robledo has a toy drive every year. He's with the Marines, former Marine, and so the cops were out there and they had all the swag up on the mm-hmm. hood of the car to pass out to everybody. Mm-hmm. So, but it's it's like um, it's like you say in the directive about this campaign. It's not one piece. It's all these pieces together. Right. All the interaction and. Um, you know, you didn't even mention the law enforcement accreditation, but Tony did. Mm-hmm. So in his uh, mm-hmm. email on what that means for the police department, and I don't think that that's something that the average person really understands the meaning of all of that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's all part of a very clear and very deliberate plan to be the best and to constantly improve and to just keep strengthening the relationships with the community. It's very impressive. That's what we're all about here. That's why we enjoy so much what we do. You know, we don't. We're not. We don't shy away from pushing ourselves. You know, as long as pushing ourselves is pushing ourselves to be better. And is there anything else that you want to share that you want our listeners to know about the Union City? Their Union City Police Department. Um, we are here not just to be responsive, but we are here to engage. We're here not when just something is wrong, but when things are right. You know, we value relationships. You know, you can go back 40 some odd years and see the the troubled relationship this organization has had back then with certain aspects of this community. We really, really believe in being part of not just an extension of, but actually engaging with this community as a member of the community. And, and uh, our officers... They deploy with that mindset. I know it sounds convenient with an extra the cop with an extra P, but our four priorities spell out the word cop with an extra P. C O P P, and and it stands for community engagement, operational efficiency, professionalism, and pride. That's what defines us as an organization in this community. C O P P. C O P P. So what's the best way to connect with you if our listeners want to connect with their chief of police? Um, well, there's there's a number of different ways, um, and, and not just with me in, uh, specifically, but just to be, to have your department as a resource. If you want to know more about what our mission is, what our plan is, what our, you can look up our strategic plan. We're gonna, I'm going to give you a copy of this too, but okay. all this kind of stuff. If you want to see what you know, our direction. And our purpose and our mission and our vision, the best way to get that is on our website, Union City Police Department website. If you want to keep up on activities, what we, what's going on here or what happened there or you want to know um, 
you know, just some really, really good policing information, some nuggets, some tips, all those kinds of things, follow us on Facebook. I do. And, and, and so you know how I much do. information we put yes, out there. You, you can attest. I can. Um, we put out some great information just, just to keep you aware on public safety, particularly in policing in this, in this community, and events that are coming up. And if you want real-time advisory stuff, like avoid this intersection because we've got a problem here or uh, we're, we have a missing child and this is what he or she looks like or whatever, that kind of real-time uh, advisory stuff, there's a, a free service that you can subscribe to on your phone. It's mm-hmm. the text-oriented service. It's called Nixle, N-I-X-L-E. And all you have to do if you want to get this information, is you open up your text application and you enter the number 888-777. That's the number you're going to be sending the text to. 888-777. And in the body of your message, just put the zip code that you're interested in getting information about. In this case, 94587 for Union City. And hit send. And when you hit send, you will automatically be subscribed, and you will get that real-time advisory stuff that's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm signed up for that service as well, so I can attest that mm-hmm. you get plenty of information, probably more than you want to know, but mm-hmm. uh, definitely if there's something going on in your neighborhood and you want to know what's up, that's mm-hmm. the service that you want to have. Um, and I think you know Union City Police Department does a great job on Facebook and on social media communicating and then also on um, nextdoor.com you know Sergeant Absolutely. Camacho he always responds to everybody's questions and mm-hmm. uh, and so and it means a lot to people to have him engage like that with them so you know I definitely think that you guys are doing a great job with that and I just want to thank your audience and just know that you know since we're an engaging organization you'll probably see me somewhere out and about because I love to get out there as well sounds great thank you so much for this interview today absolutely <laughs>